If you're not going through something today, you're sitting by somebody who is. And think about them. Uh, Gosh, the hope and the reality, though, that soon you'll get better. Because I think each one of us has uh, been beside someone to whom we said that but for whom it did not happen. And so hopeful. And uh, hope deferred is discouraging. So think about people today, and, and in that pain of those circumstances of loss, especially, and of caring for someone, sometimes the person who's needing them as much care as the one cared for is the one who is giving the care. Self-care during those times of caring is sometimes neglected. That's what we're talking about today, self-care. It all starts with a thought, I really need a vacation. But sometimes the vacation that we need is a vacation of self-care, of rejuvenation. There's a name for this. It's called wellness tourism. And that idea of wellness tourism is booming. In 2020, uh, the experts say that it was about a $790 million business by 2030. Uh, Wellness tourism is going to jump up to $1.8 billion. That's a lottery money there. So today, I want us to practice self-care. What is self-care? Well, it is what it sounds like. It's taking care of yourself, doing good things for you that bring you health spiritually, emotionally, and physically, and relationally. Now, when some think of self-care, they think of this. I'm just a man in a van in a garage hiding from my kids. Or think of this, four-year-old knocks on the bathroom door, where are you? In the bathroom, what are you doing? What do you think? Hiding, bingo. (laughs) One study showed that dads will spend seven hours a year in the bathroom hiding from the kids, or this is the researcher's words, not my words, uh, hiding from their nagging partner. That's never been the case at the right house. A British study showed that four out of five British parents will indeed hide in the bathroom for peace and quiet. Self-care, we all need it. I grew up in a culture that saw saw self-care as borderline sin. We were all about self-sacrifice. Self-care seemed to be a little egotistical, selfish, narcissistic. Yeah, but I'm evolving, as in so many other ways in my spiritual and theological life. So I want us to look today at this passage Jesus said to him, to the man who was asking about uh, the greatest command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So what do we do with the as yourself part of that? 
Are we actually supposed to love ourselves? We don't want to be a narcissist. And we have known throughout history particular narcissists. That's not the label I've placed on the people in front of you today. Those are uh, labels that uh, more expert people than myself. See, we are turned off by people who think that they are better than anybody else. We are turned off by people who are self-obsessed. We don't, most of us, don't want to be that way. And so we're afraid of this self-care. We're afraid of putting ourselves uh, in a more important position. I was raised with, maybe you were too, the evangelical world, the J-O-Y way of living, Jesus, others, and then you. And by the time I took care of Jesus and others, there was no time for the Y, no time for you, it seems like. And we were just so very much, not overtly told not to have self-care, but it was very strongly implied that self-care was not a value in our religious culture. But this phrase in chapter uh, 22, verse 39, Jesus says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Look at that little word, as. Love your neighbor as yourself. That little word, connection word, literally means equal to. So the love of your neighbor is to be equal to the love of yourself. Okay. Maybe it also means the love of myself is to be equal to the love of my neighbor. And that makes sense. Loving your neighbor is equal to loving yourself. So this suggests that we're called to love the self and love the neighbor in exactly the same way. Let's take a look at this. Gary, could you help me with this whiteboard? Thank you. I'll be back. Those of you on watching on Facebook. Thank you, Gary. You're always ready to help, aren't you? <laughs> so what does uh, your religious background tell you, or your, just your spiritual self today, tell you how we are to love our neighbor? Just shoot off some things. What are we told, and what does your heart tell you uh, that should uh, characterize love of neighbor? Respect our neighbor, okay, kindness, all right, honesty, compassion, what did I hear? I think I heard two at the same time, friendship, befriend with your neighbor, I like that, forgiveness. Oh, gosh, we could go on and on. So if this is how we're to love our neighbor, you know, understanding and empathy, we could put up there. Okay. Yeah, I'm supposed to respect myself. I'm supposed to be kind to myself, honest, and be a friend to myself and forgive myself. So when Jesus says to forgive others 70 times 7, Okay, which is a metaphor for an infinity and beyond. Maybe I'm supposed to forgive myself, too. Anybody else having a hard time with forgiving yourselves? 
You continue to beat yourself up. Don't beat yourself up forever, the philosopher Homer says. Beat yourself up once and then move on. <laughs> if we could only do it once, and maybe we shouldn't even do it once. Just let that go. Can anybody quote the golden rule? I don't want to put anybody on the spot, but if you want to volunteer, we'll listen to you. Exactly. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, who said that? It's not a trick question. <laughs> We're in church, so who else would have said it? Yeah, the answer to everything in church is always Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus did say that. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. But the next question is, who said it first? Not Jesus. You know, the scholars tell us that this principle of doing to others as you would have them do to you was first articulated about 2,000 years before Christ, B.C., or as we say today, B.C.E., by a, an Egyptian queen, Mahat. 2,000 years before Jesus said it, it was being said. In the 6th century B.C., Buddha made this principle of doing to others as you would have them doing to you the cornerstone of his, of his system of ethics. Wow. So when we quote doing to others, it is okay to see that as a Christ-like uh, ethic. But it goes beyond the... 33 years of a Jesus person. It transcends one particular religion. Let me ask you this. What do these religions have in common? Judaism, Christianity, Islam, Baha'i, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, Sikhism, Confucianism, Taoism, Zoroastrianism, Wicca, and humanism? Anybody want to guess what they have in common? The golden rule, they all value the golden rule. The golden rule is a part of every one of those systems of belief. Now, what that tells me, if that principle of ethics and of treating people and the, and the mutuality of others and myself and me with others and others with me is found in every religion found in every non-religious system. Now, I'm going to say something. Somebody gave me today a little cute look. Well, Gary did that back in the back, a, a, a joke gift. I love joke gifts. It's a can of gummy worms or a jar of gummy worms, and the label is uh, a jar of worms. And I said, well, what's the purpose of this? Are we going fishing again? He said, no, but you're always opening a can of worms. So here's a can of worms. Oh, gosh. A belief in God. Now, this is only my understanding. It could be totally screwed up. But a belief in God is not necessary to endorse or to practice the golden rule. I think, I think, 
that the universe, that love, that God, as Paul Tillich says, the ground of all being, whatever name you'd want to give that, uh, writes into the universe this golden rule, regardless of what faith label you have or don't have. Now, all religions may endorse it, or most religions may endorse it. Not all religions practice it. I grew up in a religion that didn't practice it, but we endorsed it. I endorse it, and I don't always practice it. But I will say this. It's my understanding that any religion that does not make this golden rule, the mutuality of the golden rule, the focus of their faith, can easily and probably does become toxic and deadly. Treat each other the way we want to be treated and treat ourselves the way we know we should treat others. Kindness and honesty and friendship and forgiveness and empathy and understanding and compassion. So to be good to others, is it true that to be good to others, I have to be good to myself? Uh, I, I have uh, a few battles with self-esteem and uh, getting down on myself and beating myself up. And I've noticed, uh, sadly, that whenever I feel down on myself, uh, I do not present to Denise a very loving presence. When I am beating myself up, I lost my wallet last week, and I panicked for four hours until uh, somebody found it on a parking lot and turned it in, which, love that person, and, uh, and everything was still in it. But during those four hours, I tried to uh, access my truer self, but sometimes my false insecure self, and I began to have negative self-talk, you idiot, how did you, why did you not take better uh, care, and why weren't you more responsible, you're just so stupid sometimes. But I discovered that when I beat myself up and talk negatively about myself, I'm just not very a loving person to be around, and I, the ripple effect of that obviously catches Denise and anybody else that's in the lake with me at that time. And when I'm down on myself and I don't have a loving presence to her, I, I find myself impatient with Denise and I find myself kind of uh, overly sensitive. I'm sensitive anyway, but overly sensitive where she would say something and I would interpret it as a criticism or something, as something negative. And my body language gets real stiff, you know, kind of resistant. And it has nothing to do with Denise. It has everything to do with my self-care and not being understanding and forgiving and not treating myself as my own friend. Well, I've got a long way to go on that. Maybe you do too. And it's a spiritual thing to do that. I don't think it's a sinful thing at all. So what I'm learning is to love myself, I've got to get the right mirror. We can't think about a mirror without thinking of Snow White. Day after day, the queen boldly and confidently stood in front of the mirror and asked the question, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And every day without fail, the mirror would answer, 
even though the queen was foul, the mirror would say, you are the fairest of them all. Then one fateful morning, the queen got the shock of her life when she asked the question, and she got a different answer. It's not you, queen. The fairest of them all is Snow White. What's interesting about that part of the story is that the image of the queen, the face of the queen, never changed. What changed was the mirror's perception. No longer did the mirror perceive the queen to be the fairest of them all. The queen didn't change a bit, but the mirror did. And the spiritual lesson I'm taking away from that is that I'm just like the queen. I'm drawn to mirrors. I'm mesmerized, in fact, maybe you are too, by what those mirrors say to me and about me. Unfortunately, some of those mirrors tell us that we're not the fairest of them all. Instead, we see mirrors and we hear mirrors judging us all the way from childhood through adolescence to adulthood. Mirrors telling us that we're fat, frumpy, and failures. Two families have sued the meta company, Facebook and Instagram, for fueling eating disorders and mental health issues in their children, their teenagers. And these two that came out last week are just kind of two more in the long list of lawsuits that are linking the social media platforms to mental health illnesses. Because these platforms become mirrors in which we see a reflection and we interpret that reflection in the words and in the thoughts of those social platforms. Maybe y'all saw in the news several months ago the Facebook papers, a whistleblower in Facebook released the internal documents of Facebook and those documents were very incriminating to the Facebook people, the meta people, and they admitted that we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. Now, meta is not the only source of a distorted mirror. This past week, Pope Francis has been on an apology tour in Canada to the indigenous people especially and particularly of Canada because from the late 1800s to the 70s to the 1970s, thousands upon thousands, it's estimated that 150 to 200,000 indigenous peoples from Canada were stolen basically from their homes and forced to live in and attend Catholic institutions. And they were victims of cultural genocide, physical and sexual abuse. Many of those children went missing. Their graves are just now recently being discovered. In this video, one of these victims remembers what it was like as a child. 
in those religious institutions and the mirror that those religious institutions held up in front of him. Take a look. People often ask me if I believe in hell, and I said, yeah, I do. But I talk about it in terms of what this gentleman says. People are living through hell. And what's tragic about this story is that a religion put people through hell. Claiming to save people from hell, they were creating a living hell. One victim who as a child was uh, subject to the sexual, physical abuse said this about that experience. The only thing I learned in a religious school was how to hate myself. So let me ask you another personal question, and I want to hear your response. Am I too far for the camera? You could? Are you just getting the table? Okay. So those of us who were raised in a religious institution, the church, the church held up a mirror in front of you in Sunday school class, in youth group, or as a pastor or the preacher in his sermons or her sermons. And when the church held up a mirror, what image of yourself did you see reflected in that mirror, good or bad? If you feel so inclined, what was that? Fear. Okay. Dirty. What was over here? I missed one, and I heard one over here. Hate. Inferior. Thank you, niece. Okay. Oh. oh my gosh, we could go on and on, couldn't we? Do you hear and do you feel the the pain? The church is the healing hands of God. The healing hands of Jesus. But too many people, it sounds like, have come and experienced church life, and instead of feeling healed, there has just been the infliction of hurt and hurt and hurt. And I think the church has just absolutely, when I say the church, I don't excuse myself at all. I include myself. But the church has, instead of healing people, we have inflicted upon people pain and damage that they have seen from their own reflection of the mirrors. 
So self-care starts with getting a new mirror. The mirror of God that sees you. Yeah, he sees our stuff and he sees our uh, fears and he sees our hurts and how we express those hurts in unhealthy and hurtful ways to others. But when God looks at us, it's my sincere, genuine conviction at this stage of my life that God sees you as good, lovely, lovable, capable of love, worthy of love, pure, innocent. The Latin word innocent literally means unhurt. And when an innocent person becomes a guilty person, maybe the innocence has gone to guilt because there's been hurt. And I am so saddened by the fact that the church, through its message, has been the source of woundedness and hurt in people's lives. And it's my desire to the end of my life to hold up the mirror to everyone, whether I'm having a beer, a glass of wine, a, glass, a cup of tea, or teaching on a Sunday morning, to hold up a mirror to that person so they can see I am loved and I am lovable and I am worthy and I am good. And out of that, I will live according to that identity. So self-care starts with getting a new mirror. Self-care also happens when we set boundaries. Boundaries, talk about those. What is a boundary? Healthy boundaries can be your best self-care. Without boundaries, we feel taken advantage of, taken for granted, imposed upon. I love this title of an article that I read about boundaries. Why you should focus on boundaries, not just bubble baths or hiding in the bathroom. It's easy to take a bubble bath and it's a temporary relief. Setting boundaries is hard work and it's a more permanent way of self-care. One of the best books I've ever read on any topic is a book on boundaries. And I read it back in my older days, boundaries, when to say yes and how to say no, to take control of your life. Now, some people have no regard for boundaries at all. They're just always in your space. And when you say no to working late because you are exhausted, you're setting a healthy boundary. When you put your phone on do not disturb because you want to spend some time with your family or you just want to spend some time by yourself reading a book, taking a walk, watching a movie, you're setting a healthy boundary. When you say no to things that you really just don't want to do, that's a healthy boundary. When you walk out of a room because someone is continually yelling at you, you're setting a healthy boundary, and that's harder to do than to take a bubble bath. Setting boundaries results in 
emotional, physical, relational care. Boundaries on social media, boundaries on shopping, boundaries on people are all part of good care. Girl named Ashley Joss had made a, a commitment to read more books. So she went to Target, bought a book, came home, opened it up, started to read. Her dog barked, and she was kind of alarmed by that, so she threw her book aside to see what the dog was barking about. And when she threw her book to the side, uh, a note and a $5 bill dropped out of the book. This is what the note said. To the person who buys this book, I'm having a tough day. I thought maybe I could brighten someone else's with this little surprise. So go buy a coffee, a donut, or a face mask. Practice some self-care today. Remember that you are loved. You are amazing. You are strong, Lisa. And Ashley did what we all would do. She, she posted it on social media. And it motivated people to give their version of a $5 bill and an encouraging note to somebody. But Lisa, who wrote this note and left this money, helps me sum up what I'm wanting to say today. And that is, number one, I want us to leave looking into the right mirror. A mirror that says you are loved, you are amazing, you are strong. That is a true mirror. Anything else is distorted. But Philip, I don't act loved, and I don't act strong, and I don't act amazing. I do some silly things. I know, I do too, but in your heart, in your core, in your true self, that's who you are. And that's what God sees and what God's mirror reveals. When our behavior doesn't match our identity, we, uh, we admit it, take responsibility for it, ask forgiveness for it, and go back to living our true self. But then, Lisa helps us understand looking into the right mirror, but then loving others, even the stranger. Self-care and care for others go hand in hand. I don't think I can be kind to others until I'm kind to myself. And being kind to myself helps me be kind to others, hopefully vice versa. So, go love yourself. Go love your neighbor. Christ, help us do that.